Now, you've heard me say this many times before. I'm going to just say it again. We are like a teaching hospital. We train people, we equip people, and then we send them out into the world. And as we do that, part of it is we allow other gifted men to preach here on Sunday morning. I don't preach every week intentionally. That's the way it's set up so we can have others come through, be trained, and then sent out around the world. And this morning, um, we have a very special guy coming to, to preach. He's preached here before at least maybe two or, two or three times. His name is Matt Swell. And I, I really like Matt and his wife, Jackie. They're wonderful, wonderful, godly people. They've been pouring into our, many of our children on Sunday morning, teaching them the Word. And it's, I'm sad to say that, that Matt and his wife are, are moving away to Alabama, of all places, to um, go to a seminary at Beeson. And so I just thought before he leaves, I really want to get him up here one more time. So, Matt, come on up and bring the Word, bro. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. I was kind of nervous during our singing time there, but then uh, I put my hands up. They were playing my song, and the butterflies flew away. (laughs) Did he just quote who I think he quoted? Uh, Some time ago, my wife was on the phone with a customer service representative from a company with whom we had established uh, a certain level of trust. We had a security question. Um, so that they would know it was me calling and not some intruder. And so, but my wife was on the phone, and so she's on the phone with them, and they said, okay, here's, here's the security question. Uh, who is your childhood hero? So, so Jackie said, man, who is your childhood hero? I'm going, man, who was that? Uh, she goes, it starts with a J. I'm like, okay, uh, Jordan, Michael Jordan? She said, no, not Michael Jordan. I'm like, who else could it be? I'm like, Janet Jackson. Uh, Jimmy Buffett, Jennifer Lopez, who are some other J's? And then finally, I realized it's Jesus. And so I said, try Jesus. And the lady said, yeah, that's right. In truth, I only tried Michael Jordan and went straight to Jesus, so it wasn't as bad as I'm, I'm making it sound. But uh, <laughs> the best part was what the, the woman, who knows if she was a believer, uh, the woman said to me, or said to Jackie to tell me, uh, you might want to write down Jesus. Yes. So in a nutshell, that's my message to you this morning is you might want to write down Jesus. Uh, We're going to see him today in in an amazing light. Uh, We're going to see in the word today that the most important thing about us is how we respond to who Jesus is. Our initial response of faith to who he is is the only way we can be saved and have eternal life. Continually responding to Jesus, though, is how we live a life that counts for the glory of Christ. Uh, I want you to consider, I'm going to read this verse to you just kind of as a a framing truth for our time together today. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beholding the glory of the Lord, the Bible says, is what leads to our transformation as believers. Six verses later, in, uh, in chapter four of Second Corinthians, we find out that that glory we behold is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we behold him, we're told in that verse that uh, this transformation comes from the Holy Spirit. So that's our intention this morning, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ uh, and trust the Holy Spirit to change us. Please pray with me. Father, we're very grateful that you, the great king, sent your son Jesus to be God with us so we could behold your glory and be transformed. We're trusting your spirit for that work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I should have told you where to turn, I suppose, before I got you up off your seats. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. We're going to read through uh, chapter 9, verse 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the, wave, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked, yes, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. Go! So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the Pharisees, or some of the scribes and Pharisees said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You may be seated. Pastor Jason mentioned last week that the section of Matthew that we're in, chapters 8 and 9, is full of miracles that show the authority of, of Jesus. And last week, uh, we saw some of these discipleship intervals where in the midst of learning about Jesus' authority, uh, we see the demand of discipleship that his authority uh, sets forth. And this week, we're going to just look at that sheer authority again, his authority over 
uh, a number of things, but the demand is the same, and that is a life of discipleship. If Jesus is who we see that he is in these passages, we must follow him with our lives. So let's uh, dig into the first story. Most of you have heard it 68 times, but I promise you God's word is good enough that today, if you have ears to hear, you can come away with something fresh, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 23, where we start, is closely linked to what we heard about last week, where there are these men coming and wanting to follow Jesus. Jesus sets forth to them the demanding nature of discipleship, uh, and they, the first one wigs out, uh, but then the ones who who were truly going to follow Jesus go on a demanding ride. Uh, The way the land is around the Sea of Galilee makes it such where when there's a strong southeast wind that comes in, the warm air rising from uh, the low Sea of Galilee creates storms very quickly. And so that's what happens here. Quickly the storm rises up. The scriptures call it a great storm. It envelops them. They think they're going to die the waves are crashing over the boat. Uh, I got stuck in a storm one time when I was in a boat. Uh, I was a beached swale. Um, we stopped on a little island and ate Cheez-Its. That's how not life-threatening it was. But this one, uh, I was scared. It was nowhere near what this storm was like. These, these guys are terrified. They're seasoned fishermen who are sure they're going to perish. But Jesus, what's he doing? Oh, he was asleep. Okay. Uh, The disciples wake him and cry out, save us, Lord, we are perishing. They don't have no faith because they come to him, right? They just don't have an impressive amount of faith. By God's grace, what matters is not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. However, he doesn't want them to stay in that place of this teeny-weeny faith. So uh, he rebukes them. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why does he he bust them out like this? It's a storm, right? They think they're going to die, so why are they rebuked in this way? He has shown himself clearly to them as the messianic king. The kingdom has come in him. Dr. Don Carson says it well. He says, they failed to see that the one so obviously raised up by God to accomplish the messianic work could not possibly have died in a storm while that work remained undone. They lacked faith not so much in his ability to save them as in Jesus the Messiah. They lacked faith in Jesus the Messiah, whose life could not be lost in a storm as if the elements were out of control and Jesus himself the pawn of chance. They should have known that they're in the presence of the God-man who has come on a mission to save sinners from the greatest problem they have, their separation from God because of sin. He's come to do that. The work isn't done yet. How then could he be swallowed up and killed by a storm? So he, he shows them his authority and shows this about himself. He, he stands up uh, after rebuking them and rebukes the winds and the sea. I'm, I'm struck with the fact that he rebuked with his words. With his words, he calms a storm. We see, not, we see the authority of Jesus in these, in these passages, but also uh, very clearly the, assor- the authority of his word. And so we trust, uh, as we read his word today, as we study it, that his word has that, that power. If his word can do that, his word can also change our hearts. 
Matthew's readers who were astute in the Old Testament scriptures would know who Matthew was setting forth Jesus as. In the Old Testament, there are a number of passages where God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is clearly the one who has authority over the seas, over the oceans, over the waves. Job 28, 8 through 11, uh, God says that he has told the sea exactly how far it can go and no further. Psalm 65, 7 says, God stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves. So this Messiah, the one they're in the boat with, is God, the glorious God-man, fully God and fully human. He's God with us. The disciples then, if you look at verse 27, uh, after their poor response at first, now they respond right. They marvel, saying, what sort of man is this? What in the world? That even winds and sea obey him. Can I ask you, when was the last time you marveled at Jesus? When was the last time that you saw who he is in the word of God and you beheld him in such a way, you saw him and you savored him in such a way, you shook your head and marveled at this amazing savior we serve? See, I worry sometimes in myself and I worry sometimes if we we think we've got Jesus figured out where we're not marveled anymore. And if that's the case, I would suggest to you um, that you're not beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If, if, if from time to time you're not marveling at who he is. When the sinful disciples encounter the sinless God-man, sometimes there's this marveling that happens. And so if we're, if we're beholding him for who he is, um, I think that it's a healthy thing for that to happen from, from time to time. He was training them to interpret their circumstances, not on the basis of their circumstances, but to interpret them on the basis of who he is, the God-man whose mission to save sinners cannot be thwarted. Don't fear. Trust what Jesus is doing in the world. I think that's what what Jeremiah and Mesa are doing. They trust that Jesus said he will build his church, and that even though it's a scary thing to step out and plant a church, they're doing it because they believe that his work in the world will not be thwarted. It's a good example for us to follow. Dr. Craig Blomberg says of this passage, the focus of this passage remains squarely Christological. That means it's all about Jesus. On who Christ is, not what he will do for us. One who has this kind of power can be no less than God himself, worthy of worship. Here's the important part. Worthy of worship, irrespective of how and when he chooses to use that power in our lives. Sometimes he leaves storms unstilled for good and godly ends. Now, most of the time that I've heard this passage taught, it's uh, Jesus wants to calm the storms in your life. He's able, absolutely. But this isn't a metaphorical storm. This is a real storm that could have killed them, and he stills it. His purposes cannot be thwarted. And so we're shown the God-man and told to worship him for who he is, irrespective of when and how he chooses to use that power in our lives. So takeaway number one for the day is this. Jesus is God, and his disciple-making, people-saving mission cannot be thwarted. So align yourself with that mission. The messianic mission of of reconciling sinners to God could not be thwarted by anything. No natural disaster, nothing. So align yourself, let your life be characterized by that, that mission, getting on board with that mission that will never be thwarted. Let's move on to the next story, uh, 
looking at verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. This story in Mark and Luke uh, refers only to one demon-possessed man. Uh, That's okay. And an example of what's going on here would be that I'm sure many of you who have talked to my wife and I uh, at church on a Sunday went away, and when you told someone about it later, you said, man, I, I feel so lucky today. I got to talk to Jackie Swale. It was awesome. Now, in truth, they talked to Jackie and Matt, but the more memorable person is the one that they reported. Fair enough, right? I mean, let's be honest. Um, so that's what's going on here. There were two men. This is not a con- We don't have to say, oh, no, the Bible is contradicting itself. There, there were two men. Mark and Luke choose to uh, report on that demoniac, that demon-possessed man who, who emerged uh, as more prominent in the interaction, perhaps even the one who was making these utterances. Uh, so two demoniacs, Matthew tells us about. And the statements, the two statements here made by the demoniacs are, are really loaded. Uh, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Uh, what have you to do with us is, is an idiom that can be friendly or it can mean something like, what do you want? It's more like that. What, what are you doing here, son of God? They know who he is. They know he is the, the, the God-man, the son of God. And to know exactly who he is and hate him is purely demonic. That's what they're doing here because they're demons. Now, the second statement, have you come here to torment us before the time, is really interesting. Uh, it gives us a, kind of a big picture of what God's doing in the world and what his purposes are in the supernatural realm. Uh, the demons know the truth of Jude verse 6, which tells us that demons await a day when they will be put in their place, judged to suffer forever. They're aware of that. Uh, This phrase, have you come here to torment us before the time, is only included by Matthew in this this story. And it brings up a crucial issue that we've seen before and that we'll see again. In Jesus Christ, the kingdom has dawned. There will be a day when that kingdom is established completely. Demons will be thwarted forever. But in his ministry, he displays that power, the power whose full exertion we wait for and we long for, and obviously the demons don't wait for it and long for it, but they know it's coming. Uh, if your favorite movie is either Charlotte's Web or Babe, then you might want to cover your ears for this next part of the story. Uh, there was a herd of pigs close by. It was a Gentile region. No Jewish area would, would have you know, this big herd of pigs. Uh, Mark tells us, if you read this story in Mark, that there were 2,000 of them. Hence the sermon title. Uh, get it? It's kind of like 20,000 leagues under the sea, but with pigs. Um, anyways, the demons beg to be allowed to go into the pigs. Why? There are probably a few reasons that they beg this. Uh, one would be that they hate God and they hate his creatures. So uh, maybe they can go destroy some other creatures. They know that, uh, in the, they, they apparently are aware that in the presence of the Son of God, because of his love for humans, they're certainly not going to allow them to possess other human individuals. But I think they also see it as an opportunity to get the people of that region to not like Jesus. Uh, so with one word, again, we see the authority of Jesus' word. He says, go. And they're, they're driven from these two men. Their lives are changed forever. Verse 32, uh, so they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank 
into the sea and drowned in the waters. Uh, why, why do you suppose Jesus allowed this to happen, the, the destruction of, of the, this animal life? Uh, I think when we read verses 33 and 34, it comes a bit more, more clear into view. Verses 33 and 34. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. It says, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. But that is not especially what emerged as the top priority for the people of this region. They see life change. They see, they've known the, the horrible bondage these men have been in. They see them released. And yet because, because of the, the loss of these pigs, because of their fear at who he is, they, they, they tell him to leave. They, they beg him to leave their, to leave their region. They're confronted with deity and life change, and they say, no thanks. Uh, does this happen today? Do people hear about who Jesus is, the Savior, the God-man, the Messiah, the Lord, and still reject him? Unfortunately, yes. People frequently choose lesser things when they hear about Jesus and even see the evidence of his power in transformed lives like the Gadarenes saw. So I ask, where are you in this? Have you responded to who Jesus is by trusting him for your salvation? He's the only way. We'll see this in the next story. He's the only way for our sins to be forgiven. We must respond to him in faith in order to have eternal life. Uh, But for Christians as well, those of us who have initially responded to Jesus in faith, uh, there are are serious implications here as well. Uh, Jesus has displayed his authority in an amazing way. And yet, as commentator David Turner put it like this, economics was more important to these people than the freeing of the demoniacs from Satan's dominion. The Bible tells us that one of the things that Satan does is he blinds people from seeing the truth of the gospel. He blinds them from beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have we ever acted as if money economics is more important than people being freed from that dominion of Satan? Have you ever resolved that you won't stir the pot in relationships at work by sharing the gospel, but instead just come and do what you came to do and make money? Have you ever let anything become more important than following Jesus in his mission to rescue sinners? Family time? Keeping the peace? Staying popular and not being dubbed as an intolerant exclusivist? If so, you need to treat the problem. I'm sorry, you need to not treat the problem, but uh, not the symptom, but the problem. You need to behold Jesus for who he really is because he is supreme over all powers and authorities in the universe, and we must choose him. We must choose to treasure him and be a part of what he's doing in the world over lesser things like we see these people doing in this region. The second point that emerges today from our study of this passage is that Jesus is supreme over all powers in the universe, so we need to treasure him above lesser things. We need to treasure him 
above lesser things. Pastor John Piper makes this point very well, so I want to read to you something that I overheard him saying in a sermon. He says, how does Paul make Christ look great? By experiencing Christ as such a treasure that everything else in his life is as nothing by comparison. This is, this is what we read at the beginning. Beholding Jesus, treasuring him and being transformed. Piper continues, how do you make Christ look great and thus not waste your life? Money is given to you so that you might use money in a way that shows that money is not your treasure, but Christ is. Friends and family are given to you so that you might live with them in such a way that it will be plain to the world they are not your treasure, but Christ is. Computers, toys, houses, lands, cars, jobs, resumes, graduation, They're given to you so that you can use them in such a way so that it will be plain to the world that they are not your treasure, but Christ is. The way we display the supreme worth of Jesus is by treasuring him above all things and then making choices which make the joy we have in his supreme worth manifest. Here's the clincher. I like this part. And if he is not that for you, pray all night. If you have to do that, so that your heart would be so changed that you now treasure Jesus above everything in your life. I've become convinced that what separates Christians whose lives mean very little as far as making an eternal impact and those who do live for eternal things, who have a legacy of living out Christ's priorities, do work that will last beyond their life. I I believe what separates them is this treasuring Jesus. If you treasure Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, you will be transformed more and more into his likeness. So trivial lives and, and lives of eternal impact, I believe what separates the two is beholding Jesus, treasuring him, and then living it out. So don't be like the Gadarene fools who chose swine over the Savior. Uh, let's look now at the third story, our third and final story for the day. 9 verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. I've got a Tootsie Pop for anybody who can tell me what his own city was. Which city are we talking about here? Anybody? Who is that? Capernaum? You? Who said Capernaum? I'll, I'll give it to you after the service. For real. For real. Yeah, Matthew 4.13, Jesus uh, left Nazareth and took up residence in Capernaum. Very good. Some of you knew the answer, but you're wishing you were a little more bold. It's okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's go on here. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. I'm going to suggest to you that of all the responses to Jesus' authority in all three of these stories, the best response is these guys, and we don't even know their names. They have seen, I don't know, they heard him. Uh, he did a lot of miracles in Capernaum, so he, he somehow knew, they knew the authority of Jesus and his ability to, to heal the sick. And so they bring their friend to him. Jesus refers to their faith. He saw their faith, probably referring to both the faith of the friends and of the paralytic. But his response is stunning. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to pause and take a second and let you know this could be said of you. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, 
if at any point during the sermon it becomes clear to you by the Spirit of God that you have been not beholding Christ the way you should, you have not been treasuring Christ the way that you should, repent, but then take heart in the gospel. Take heart that because of the final, complete work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, your sins are forgiven. Be encouraged. Let that, let that calm your soul. Take heart. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, in the gospel, we discover that we are far more wicked than we ever dared believe, yet far more loved than we ever dared hope. Take heart. The Gadarenes rejected Jesus on the basis of economic priorities, but here we see these religious leaders rejecting Jesus because of religious presuppositions. Uh, They're saying that he is blaspheming because he is ascribing to himself a duty or an authority that is clearly established throughout all of the Old Testament as only belonging to Yahweh. So they're, they're, uh, they're right that only God can do it. They're right that only God can, can forgive sins. Uh, but Jesus calls them evil for their rejection of him as the divine Messiah who has that authority to forgive sins. Let's look at verse 5. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Okay, obviously, if you're, just, if you're all talk, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because if you say, rise up and walk, and they don't rise up and walk, then they can call you out. But when it comes to actually doing it, actually carrying out this function and this authority, forgiving sins, forgiving sins is by far more difficult to answer this rhetorical question that Jesus sets forth. So in order to show that he has the authority to do the greater thing, to take away sin, he does the lesser thing and says, rise up, take your mat and walk. And the man is instantly healed. Uh, my wife is in physical therapy school, so I'm constant. I, I oftentimes, I've begun thinking through these healing stories uh, through what she does. I mean, Jesus does with his words what it would take a dozen health professions and, and teamwork and, and months, months in a medical facility you know, to, to not only for him to be healed, but to learn to walk again. Jesus does it with one word, and it's stunning. He is an amazing Savior. The focus of the passage, though, is not on the easier task, the healing. The focus of the passage is on the harder task, having the authority to forgive sins. Sin is at the root of, of the things we've seen in these passages. Sin is at the root of natural disasters, uh, at the root of disease. What I mean is this. Things went wrong in creation when sin entered the world. Jesus hates those things, but he came to deal with the root of the problem. And he shows us, he shows his authority to do those things by by exercising his authority over those other things as well. Jesus' healings, especially uh, this one that deals with his authority to forgive sin, show that his ultimate defeat of sin and Satan has already begun. The kingdom has dawned. One day it will be established completely, but when Jesus came, the kingdom, uh, the kingdom was inaugurated. Even still, even though the, the priority of his, his, his mission initially was to deal with sin, we still see his amazing care and his amazing love for those who are hurting and those who are sick. He takes delight in making right what is not good. So if you're, if you're, if you're sick, go to the great, great physician. Let's, let's talk to him about it. He has the authority to heal as well as the authority to forgive sins. The biggest problem, however, for the world, uh, the biggest problem for you and I is sin. 
Jesus healed, he calmed storms, he drove out demons, but right now the people of the world do not need Jesus to heal their sickness and still their natural disasters as much as, as much as they need him to forgive their sins. Many ask, if he has this authority, why doesn't he go ahead and exert it right now? Why doesn't he make an end to sickness? Why doesn't he make an end to natural disasters, to demonic possession, uh, to Satan ruining people's lives? Uh, and obviously this is a very complicated question, and, and uh, to discuss it fully is beyond the time that we have here today. Uh, but the truth is that one day Jesus will end all of these evils and sufferings in the world. Why doesn't he just do it now? I'm suggesting to you that the Bible teaches that God has not yet put an end to evil and suffering because he is perfectly just and perfectly loving. In his perfect justice, if he were to end all evil now, then he would have to end people as well because people rejecting him is evil. When he does end evil, he will end all evil And that includes evil or sin that is inherent to all human beings. He'll do that in eternal judgment. But God sent his one and only son to the earth to do something glorious, to suffer with us and then to suffer for sin. He paid the penalty on the cross for people's rebellion against him. When anyone puts their trust in Jesus to save them from their sin, the punishment Jesus paid on the cross absorbs their sin. The wrath they deserve, the wrath we deserve for our sin, Jesus absorbs it in what he did on the cross. At that moment, Jesus makes that person perfectly righteous. And they will be gathered to him on the day when all evil is ended. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller, to quote him again, I think he said it really well. this This is huge. The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation, He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. He came to deal with the root of the problem, which is sin, rebellion against him, choosing lesser things over over God and his glory. It is the problem of all of us, made evident in our selfishness, our pride, our lust, our greed, our gluttony our misusing of the gifts, the good gifts that God gives. He is the only one who can forgive sins. We were created for his glory, and we we all thoroughly reject him. And unless we behold Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the God-man, the Savior of sin, unless we behold him and trust him to take away our sin, We cannot be right with God. We cannot have eternal life. We cannot be with him forever. It's huge. This is is the the big one of these three stories, is Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Have you responded to him, to that authority that he alone has to forgive sins? Church attendance can't rescue you from sin. Upbringing can't rescue you from sin. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. So the third point that emerges from these passages is this. Jesus is the only cure for the ultimate sickness, which is sin. So we should treasure him by bringing people to him. I think that uh, the, the 
if you've truly beheld Jesus for who he is, if you've truly seen him for who he is, if you've, if you've truly treasured him as a Christ follower, and, and, you're, and, and remember, as Christians, that's, that's what matters as well, is how are we continuing to respond to Jesus? Are we, are we treasuring him, or do we think we have him all figured out? Uh, I, think, I think what shows if you've treasured him is if you bring other people to him. So we look to these friends, these un, unnamed friends, and see that they responded by bringing others to him. They've seen him as such a great treasure that they bring others to him. Um, so are, are you bringing other people? Are, are you trying to tell other people about Jesus? Are you trying to show them that he's the only way to have sins forgiven? If not, uh, the answer is not to feel really bad. The answer is to see and savor Jesus Christ, to look to him. Ask him to change your heart so that you treasure him in a fresh way. So in summary from these passages, we see the following truth uh, Jesus is, in the first story, the calming of the storm, Jesus is God, and his disciple-making, people-saving mission cannot be thwarted. So align yourself with that agenda, that disciple-making, people-saving mission. Secondly, in the story of the, uh, the demoniacs, Jesus is supreme over all powers in the universe. So treasure him above lesser things. And third, Jesus is the only cure for the ultimate sickness, which is sin. So treasure him by bringing other people to him. Verse 8 is the perfect closer for today. 9 verse 8. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid. Did you know that, that Jesus scared the junk out of people when he did this stuff? They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They had glorified God who had given such authority to men. Uh, so in closing, I want to uh, pray and I'm going to use the words of a prayer uh, from a book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. That's where I got some of this language from, written by John Piper. Uh, seeing and savoring Jesus Christ is what it's all about in this Christian life. So bow your heads. Let's pray together. Eternal Father, we must thank you because you have made us taste and see the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son. Oh, to know him. Father, we long to know him. Banish from our minds low thoughts of Christ. Saturate our souls with the spirit of Christ and all his greatness. Enlarge our capacities to be satisfied in all that you are for us in him. Where flesh and blood are impotent, reveal to us the Christ and rivet our attention and our affections on the truth and beauty of your all-glorious Son. And grant that whether rich or poor, sick or sound, we might be transformed by him and become an echo of his excellence in the world. In Jesus' name we pray and we, we beg you, Lord, by your spirit to transform our hearts in this way. Amen.